Reformed Presbyterian Church when we had a, a, a campsite up at Daggett Lake north of here. I think it was before Pastor Suffering was born, actually. But it was way, way back. And every year I've been here, in that seat has been my dear brother Chuck. And I could look at you when I preach. Now I've got to change and look back there. But thank you, Chuck, for your work that you're doing here. Thank you also for the support that you give to the Haven. I'm uh, struck with the fact that you have the graven image of Bill and Margaret up there in the back, and you have the picture of our church facility in Comac with you. And I, before the reading of the scriptures, let me give you a little update on what the, what the uh, Puritans would call the return of prayers as you have prayed for us. The, the Haven is a mission church of your sister denomination, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And as you come south, if you really want to go through New York, you drive down through New York and start going out east, and you will come to the largest island connected with the continental United States, appropriately called Long Island, which is about 120 miles in length. After you leave, we'll say JFK Airport, Shortly afterwards, you're in Nassau County, which is about 30 miles in, in length. Uh, that's where I ministered for 36 years in Franklin Square. And then after a brief stint as a regional home missionary, I was asked to serve farther out east in uh, the, if you keep going, you've got the North Fork of Long Island, the South Fork, Riverhead right at the, whatever you call this part of the fork. We are just, we are just at the western side of Suffolk County, just not far from Nassau, kind of a portal to get to a county of about one and a half million people, very, very challenging mission fields. This is a very wealthy area. People don't think they need Jesus, but they really do. And the challenge is to be relevant to their needs without compromising the gospel in that area. Last year when I spoke, we were just in the middle of the remodeling of the uh, projects for the church building. The Lord wonderfully enabled us to purchase in March of last year. That's a, that's a story in itself. I think I gave you some of that story last year. September 11th, how appropriate to preach at the Haven. September 11th, 2022, we had our inaugural worship service in that building that holds uh, about 80 people or so, unless we use overflow, was full. It was a wonderful, remarkable service in which we dealt uh, with the Lord Jesus as our great haven. Then the arrows began to come. You read Pilgrim's Progress when Christian has come to faith in Christ. I think he's at the door of Interpreter's house. And arrows are shot at him at that stage in his life, and we surely got them. Number one, the elder who was really the driving force for the beginning of the Haven about two weeks after the September 11th, 2022 service, that elder caved. He had been right down at the area of the Twin Towers on September 11th, 2001. He will probably, unless the Lord does a great deliverance, never sleep a day in his life without nightmares of the bodies that he saw hurtling from the top of the Twin Towers and hurtling to their death. And he caved. He caved with a, with a nervous breakdown. 
and is still recuperating from that, but that put a real, was a real challenge to us uh, because he was basically an associate pastor to me. He'd been a pastor before he came into the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Second, after praying earnestly with all the arguments you can raise before the Lord in what's called a, a suit, the Old Testament word is a reed, a suit. We prayed for the release of one of our inmate members. We have two Haven members who are inmates in New York correctional facilities. And according to what the judge said, uh, when this brother was committed to correctional facilities in 2001, he should have been released from prison. He has the best record that they could imagine. The church worked with him and a release package. We were so excited. We prayed for his release and he was denied because, and if you're correct, if you're part of the New York correctional system and you're honest, you'll agree with me, it is an utterly corrupt, self-serving institution. It is because this man is their poster boy for that correctional facility in New York. Uh, he was kept in prison because he's the one that puts a good face forward for them. Devastating for the Haven because this man's gifts in music, this man's gifts in leadership are things that we coveted using. Big blow to his wife, who's also part of the Haven, and to him. And then lots of family trials. To the point that we've said, beginning facetiously, not only half facetiously, um, if you want to come into the membership of the Haven, we have a sixth membership vow for you. Are you prepared to suffer? Uh, because it was every time we prayed, it was one thing after another for all of our families. But the Lord was teaching us that he makes his strength perfect, not in ourselves and not in a building, but in our own weakness. And so the prayer meetings that we have on Wednesday evenings, the Zoom prayer meetings, what a blessing they have been. Uh, we've seen people who have been, I'll use the word, I don't know any other way to put it, healed from breast cancer and healed from other kinds of things. Uh, the Lord uses means, uh, but he has made them well, and we thank the Lord for that. And we've had many other similar answers to prayer. We're blessed with some fruit from our neighborhood outreaches in that area. A lady from Guyana who had just moved to the area with her husband looking for a church, now coming to the Haven, and we're praying that her husband will do the same. We, were, we are blessed with intern David Rios, who's a Greenville Seminary student. He began July 1st. And that's been a godsend for me uh, because I realize um, I'm no longer 29 years old. Uh, in the Lord's providence, I'm 71 and a half. And I don't have the energy that I had when I was younger. Uh, but this in intern who's working with us that we hope will be called as an associate has been a godsend to, to us. His wife will be administering a, a homeschool group that will be meeting at the church facility at least one day a week, uh, beginning in the new school year, which isn't far away. And uh, that's also been a great blessing to have that opened up. We had, um, and to show you God works, and we'll get to the scripture reading, uh, we'd been praying, Lord, we, we want to make maximum use of this church facility, main highway, Veterans Highway in Suffolk County, northwestern part of Suffolk County. And Lord, please let us use the facility. And um, things weren't opening up. 
and uh, we had in God's providence a former police officer from Suffolk County uh, give a, a take a lot of time going through, and I'm not exaggerating, I think every corner of the Havens Church facility and um, got done and he said, you know, it's a good thing you haven't had many groups here yet. You have a lot of safety projects you need to be working on and correcting. And so that summer project, and we, uh, we, we thank the Lord that, he, that he's waited to give us things to use. And there are things coming down the pike. Also, we're so blessed. We have an apartment upstairs at the church facility at the back. And that's where our intern and his wife and two children are living. All this past spring was used to fix that up. It's beautiful. So thank you for praying for us. Um, the work is a real challenge. It's Suffolk County is not an easy mission field. I read of these churches that are growing in the United States, and I don't read of any of them in upstate New York or down on Long Island, but the fact of the matter is the Lord has his witness here and he is building his church. He's doing it here. He's doing it at the Haven, but we need your prayers very, very much. Turn to your Bibles, please, to Psalm 88, and thank you again for your support of us. Psalm 88. I use the English Standard Version. I hope that's okay. I'm going to change the, the last part of the last verse uh, to what is increasingly being used as a translation of rather complex Hebrew phrase, and hence you'll know that you'll understand the reason for the title of the sermon. Psalm 88, a song, a psalm of the sons of Korah, to the choir master, according to Mahalat, Leonot, a maskil of Heman, the Ezraite. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you, incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. Selah, which means stop and think about that. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord, I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you as your steadfast love declared in the grave? 
or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am, and it's interesting, this is a unique Hebrew word. It's the only place it's found, so we can only, the, the, the speculation is this is probably the most heightened form of perplexity you can imagine. It's translated here, helpless. I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. I am utterly perplexed. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. Now the ESV and other versions have something similar to this. My companions have become darkness. Uh, but others translated, I think, much closer to the original. My own friend, my only friend, is darkness. Darkness is my only companion. Darkness is my only friend. Let's pray. Our God, we pray that you would give us the right lens with which to read Psalm 88. And with that lens, in this darkest of all of the Psalms, we pray that we would derive the light comfort and the joy that we are meant to have through Jesus Christ. Amen. It was the most bizarre Sunday of my entire ministerial career. I was in another state with another teacher. We were working together teaching a group of students homiletics or preaching. It was a Saturday of that class, and he and I were to preach in different congregations the next day. I was to have preached in the morning, in the evening. And that morning, when I'm asked where I am to be preaching, I give the answer. The man to whom I gave the answer blanched and said, Bill, you better sit down. I've got to check on something, uh, but I'll come back and we should talk which automatically makes you wonder what's going on. Five minutes later, he comes back and tells me that the wife of the pastor of the church in which I was to preach had committed suicide that morning. And he was getting permission to tell me that. An awful lot happened over those hours. I had to rethink what I was to say the least, what I was to preach. The change was made for me to preach in the evening. It was a joint worship service in a very large congregation with several hundred people there in shock, either because they were members of the church where the pastor's wife had committed suicide or because they were friends or because they knew of the church. It was a packed place on a Sunday evening. And I preached on what really is the classic psalm to deal with depression, Psalm 77. 
And one of the points that I made is that sadly, churches are places where people are afraid to be honest about what they're really dealing with in life. And that was the environment of that particular church as I had learned in extensive discussions with the elders that day. If you struggled with various emotional or mental or spiritual issues, you were not to discuss them because real Christians don't have those problems. That's like saying there shouldn't be sick people in a hospital. It's not only wrong, but it is utterly, utterly dangerous. It's the effect of a legalism that can permeate reformed churches and others. I'm not known for understatement. That night, by God's grace, I sought to burst that balloon and use, with my wife's permission, the fact that she had gone through a very deep postpartum depression after the birth of our sixth child. It was through that we learned various things about depression, about antidepressants, about the assaults of the devil, everything connected with it. And God had given, has given her opportunity to minister to other ladies who've gone through this. So in the message, I said, we're that concerned that you, especially ladies who are in here, feel the openness to speak about issues you're dealing with. My wife will remain up here. Ladies, you can feel free to come up and speak with her about these things, and we'll go it from there to help you out. I have absolutely no use for the idea that the church is a place for people who really don't struggle with known sin. Over two dozen ladies waited in line to speak with Margaret, others to speak with me, other people to speak with me. Three words came out of that, those conversations Margaret had with the ladies. One, we feel like we are simply in darkness in our depression. Number two, we're alone. We can't open up to other people. My pastor's wife believed that if she'd opened up to other people, she'd be regarded as unspiritual. No pastor's wife should ever struggle with depression. You're alone. And number three, you feel hopeless. What's the end result if you live out of hopelessness? Those three words are words that are shot through Psalm 88. And in the past several weeks, as we've experienced various trials at the Haven, I don't know how many times I've urged people to read this psalm, but read it with the right lens. And I have a feeling, since all the churches in our culture are dealing with these things, maybe Redeemer Reformed Presbyterian Church has had some similar challenges, not just depression, but a sense of hopelessness in people, a sense of discouragement, people who cry out and wonder if God is really listening and who really don't have the listening ears of others. Could it be that you have people like that that you're dealing with here? My guess is you do. 
So we're going to take some time this morning to look at Psalm 88. And notice the title. Now the title is actually, there's one of two. The one other one that I would choose is Darkness of Darkness, All is Darkness, or Is Darkness Your Closest Friend? Which I think is probably the best way to translate the very end of this psalm. And it's very interesting. It's a song, these words that you read at the beginning of Psalm 88, rather extended statement. It's a song. And a lot of these words, we don't exactly know what they mean. It's regarded as a masculine, as a wisdom psalm. And it is two musicians. And you can imagine when they, because one of the words that's used in here is close to the word humility or lament. It's a sorrowful song. We don't like to sing sorrowful songs. We don't like to sing downbeat songs with minor keys. But this song would be a real minor key song for the Israelites. Why did they sing it? Because it's a part of their lives. The Christian life isn't always the upbeat, happy, clappy kind of thing. There are the deep minor keys in every believer's life. And the very fact that these words are here at the beginning tell us all of that. Now, as we come to the psalm itself, it, it is remarkable, and it is remarkable, remarkably comforting that this darkest of psalms is here. So how can that be? Well, you have to have the right lens. If your lens in reading this psalm is you or the professed believer, you're going to really miss it. You'll come away either with the idea that this person cannot be a genuine believer. Or if this is a genuine believer, there's absolutely no hope for him or her. Please don't use that lens of individuals. Unless the individual is Jesus Christ. The lens you use is the lens Jesus would have used in Luke 24. If there's any sermon I could have gone back to here, it would have been that one. Luke is, uh, Jesus is on the way to Emmaus, a little dinky village. Here's the, here's the one who's conquered death. And he's on the way to this little dinky village called Emmaus with a couple of his disciples. And he preaches, it's the Lord's day. And he opens up in all of the scriptures, Moses and prophets and the Psalms. The things concerning himself. And my guess is there would have been a fair amount of time given in that long walk, the Psalm 88. So there's your lens. It's Jesus. But we're going to come back to that. Okay. So let's begin, though, with looking at you and the Psalm. Let's just begin it that way. And I call that, as we look at verses 1 through 7, near death experience, real near death death experience. Notice prayer that cries out in verses 1 and 2. Now this is a believer. Oh Lord Jehovah, the covenant name given to God's people. God of my salvation. That's the way it begins. As you begin, our Father who is in heaven, he is your God in Jesus Christ. First of the three words for cry. I cry out day and night before you. This is the cry of shock. This is the cry of someone who's been raped. This is the cry of someone 
who has a loved one that has died suddenly. It is a cry of someone who is shaken right to his or her foundation. I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. And that word is the cry of lamentations. Once the shock is over, the tears begin to flow. And that's what's in view here. Incline your ear to my cry. You cannot imagine this without a flood of tears. And notice this experience is a living death. For my soul is full of troubles. And my life draws near to Sheol. I feel as if I am dead. As bleak and as dark and as foreboding as the grave is, which is basically what Sheol is, I feel like I'm there. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man. I am a person who has no strength. I'm a living corpse. That's exactly the way I feel in this shock and in this distress and in this anguish. Like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. This language at the beginning of verse 5, I'm like one set loose among the dead. What does that mean? I had a life of joy, happiness, relative ease, until whatever this is came. Now I feel like I am just been thrown out of a plane. And it's as if my life being thrown out of that plane without a parachute is with only those who are dead. All of that meaningful, joyful communication is gone. Like those whom you remember no more. And like those whom God, while he never really forgets, it's as if he's not dealing with them anymore in this life, for they are very powerful word. They are cut off from your hand. Lord, you are my umbilical cord to all that was good. And that umbilical cord is cut, cut off from your hand. You have put you. Now notice, notice, now God's doing this. You have put me in the depths of a pit, in the regions dark and deep. God, you're in back of this, and he is. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all of your waves. Lord, I'm graven on the palm of your hands, but I don't feel that anymore. All I feel is as if your hand is striking me and spanking me and dealing with me as if I am under your wrath. You have put me in a sea with torrents of waves and no shore, and it's dark, and I feel like I'm going to die. Selah, 
stop and think about that. Brothers and sisters, this is reality for many, 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 many believers. Maybe you. In a fallen world, you are a fallen person dealing with other fallen people who do fallen things to fallen people like you. And sometimes you wish you were dead. Now, lest you get too much in all of this, God has a way of delivering his people. Joseph is in prison. This has been one of our great comforts with our inmate in prison. Joseph was in prison a lot longer than he should have been, and the Lord did deliver him, and the Lord exalted him in Egypt. As you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are in the fiery furnace, and they get out, and they're promoted in the land of Babylon. And then Daniel would be in the lion's den, and he's protected, and he's honored. He gets out safely. Jonah, cast into the sea. You can relate to Jonah with his description of this. And the Lord prepared a great fish, and the Lord had service for him to do. So yes, the Lord has his ways of delivering, but you don't see that. As Joseph, in the midst of his prison experience, because we think in terms of the momentum of providence, would have said, I'm stuck here for the rest of my life. That's the way you will think. Can you see it? Darkness, loneliness, and hopelessness. They're all given here. Ellie Wiesel's very painful book, Night, Elie Wiesel was a Jew who experienced, at 15 years old, life in Birkenau, one of, the, one of the concentration camps, one of the death camps in Hitler's Germany. He is then transferred to another facility, and this is his description. Never shall I forget that night, the first night in camp that turned my life into one long night seven times sealed. Never shall I forget that smoke. Never shall I forget the small faces of the children whose bodies I saw transformed into smoke under a silent sky. See it? Darkness, loneliness. Never shall I forget those flames Flames that consume my faith forever, hopelessness. Never shall I forget the nocturnal silence that deprived me for all eternity of the desire to live, hopelessness. Never shall I forget those moments that murdered my God and my soul and turned my dreams to ashes. Never shall I forget those things, even were I condemned to live as long as God himself. Never. Elie Wiesel was a Jew, remained a Jew, was eventually released from the prison camp, but he was never released from the experience that fallen people go through in a fallen world 
dealing with fallen people. Now, at least for me, that's about all I can take of just dealing with me and the psalm and near-death experiences. Because, brothers and sisters, the lens that you look through this psalm with is Jesus Christ. Jesus opened up in Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, including Psalm 88, everything concerning himself. And don't you see it here? As you go back to verses 1 through 7, think of Gethsemane. Think of Christ praying in agony with shrieks in agony, with cries of agony as he sheds near drops of blood. Can't you hear Jesus praying? O oh Lord, God of my salvation, I cry to you day and night. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul, my soul, says Jesus, is full of troubles. And my life really does draw near to the grave. It's less than 24 hours away. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, and that'll get worse as I bear my cross. Like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. Father, if you're willing, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And the Lord's will for his son is to forsake him. That you might not be forsaken in him. You've put me in the you. Father, if you're willing, let this cup pass from me. For you have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Why does he say, if you're willing, let this cup pass from me. I want you to imagine as you're reading through the Old Testament, particularly when you come to the major prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and to some extent Daniel as well, and then all of the minor prophets, and you have as if it is water sent through a funnel, you have the massive judgments of God that he pours out upon his own unfaithful people why is that recorded? Because what comes out at the very end of that funnel and those torrents of wrath, that's what befalls Christ on the cross. And it's one of the reasons why as you're reading through the Old Testament, you say, Lord, why do you have me read this? For the same reason you read Psalm 88. Jesus in Moses and the prophets and the Psalms spoke of all of the things concerning himself. Lord God, you overwhelm me with your wrath and with your waves. Stop and think about that. And then, and then there's these, these musings, if you will, of the Lord. Imagine what's in Christ's mind as he's taken to Pilate's residence, as he's taken to Herod's residence, as he's taken back to Pilate, as he's taken to Golgotha. In what was not a great distance, but what would have been full of these musings, you have caused my companions to shun me. 
Judas, who betrayed me, Peter, who will deny me at the cross where all but very few would be present. You've caused my companions to shun me. You've made me a horror to them, someone they don't even want to look at. Can't you see Jesus there? I'm shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you as he literally would do on a very literal cross where he very literally cried to his Father in heaven. And now these penetrating questions. Think of yourself asking this in Jesus. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Why is that Selah there? What's the purpose of God in the world? Pastor Sufferin alluded to it in his prayer this morning. It's that you would glorify God and enjoy him. That you would be delivered by a redeemer who would get glory from delivering you from wrath and from death. Imagine if that were not the case, that there would be the taking away of the very thing that God has ordained for the good and blessing of the world and of yourself. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Selah, stop and think about that. The answer would be no, if there were no resurrection from the dead. Is your steadfast love declared in the grave, steadfast love that includes mercy and everlasting life? How can it be if it's in the grave? Or your faithfulness in Abaddon. Abaddon means destruction. Lord, if your work is to save, how can it be that you're faithful when bodies molder in the ground, when there's destruction that's there? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness Land of forgetfulness is a penetrating phrase. You can interpret it different ways. It probably means this. Real human beings whom God really chose from the foundation of the world, and he really saved them, and he really put them in the world as microcosms of his grace, and they will be in glory to praise his name. Lord, do you get glory if they're forgotten in the grave? And you can imagine Jesus himself with these musings as he goes to the place where there would be the victory over these things. But this is the stark, dismal reality that Jesus faces. I, O oh Lord, here's the third reference to cry. <clears throat> I cry to you, and it's the cry of rejection. My God. My God, why have you forsaken me? He cried out. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Oh, Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me, afflicted and close to death? He's on the cross, and he's speaking and thinking and musing. And from my youth up, wasn't our Lord's life threatened even from his birth? I suffer your terrors. I am perplexed. I'm greatly perplexed. I'm helpless. I have no answers. 
my God, my God, why? Because of your wrath. All of the concentrated wrath that the Old Testament speaks of is pouring out upon his unfaithful people is poured out upon Christ. Your wrath has swept over me, your dreadful assaults, dreadful assaults, destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me altogether. Can't you again see the cross here? You caused my beloved and my friend to shun me and darkness is my deepest companion. One of the most fascinating parts of those hours our Lord was on the cross is the three hours of darkness that enshrouded him. What's that darkness? Hell is a place of outer darkness. Hell itself so enveloped Christ that not only his dearest friends, but his Father in heaven were unseen to him. And darkness literally became his dearest companion. I want to suggest to you, brothers and sisters, that our American evangelical culture has dismally low views of the cross. You who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, hear at the cross may view its nature rightly. Here, its guilt may estimate. And when you hear people speak about Jesus and the gospel and salvation as if it's a bag of M&Ms, that's horribly low views of the cross. The cross in which the apostle Paul said, God forbid, that I should glory, save in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, by which, listen, the world is crucified to me and I to the world. We sang, O sacred head now wounded, Jesus singing this. My sacred head now wounded, with grief and shame weighed down, now scornfully surrounded with thorns. Think of the cross, my only crown. O sacred head, what glory, what bliss till now was thine. But now, despised and gory, only darkness now is mine. Folks, don't zone out. That really happened in human history. 
And when God gets a hold of men and women and boys and girls, and they not only experience these kinds of bouts of darkness and loneliness and hopelessness that are in here, but get to the reason for it, which is sin, and the wages for it, which is death, if they don't have Jesus, they don't have any hope at all. That's why Good Friday and Easter are really the heart of the history of everything in the whole universe. Selah, stop and think about that without Christ. Utter darkness is yours and mine. That is our most important portal to a world under the wrath of God. Let's end with you and Christ in the psalm. You know what the Christian life is? I believe in Jesus. I'm declared righteous by grace alone, through faith alone. I'm heading to heaven. That's true. But that misses a major point. You, you come to Christ. I hope that you have. But if you haven't, you should. You must. You come and you take Jesus to be your Lord and your Savior, and it's a marriage. All that he has, all that he is, all that he does is yours as part of his bride. Well, you're even made partakers of the divine nature by the Holy Spirit. And yes, his righteousness is yours. His death is yours. His life is yours. His reign is yours. His return is yours. I am in union with Christ. If you don't have that, please get it. Otherwise, your view of the gospel is so, so narrow. Do you know what that means? It means that you are never alone in your darkness. Jesus said, lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. And as wonderful as that is, it's glorious to think of Psalm 88 and you with Jesus. When Paul said, I am crucified with Christ, everything that went into that crucifixion and darkness prefigured here, Paul was with him. That loneliness Paul experienced in Christ. Christ's loneliness was his. Christ's sense of hopelessness was his. Christ's darkness was his. And he was with him. That's why your lens has to be not only Jesus Christ, but you with him. How you sometimes feel <laughs> is what you read in the psalm. In verse 3, you sometimes feel my soul is full of troubles. My life draws near to the grave. You sometimes feel I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man or a woman who has no strength. You sometimes feel like I'm let loose among the dead, as if I'm living with the dead. You sometimes feel, verse 7, as if your wrath lies heavy upon me. And you feel overwhelmed by the waves of God that overflow you. In fact, you feel, verse 16, as if it's God's own dreadful assaults against you. But you don't live out of your feelings. Don't do what our culture 
constantly impels you to do. Live out of your desires, of your feelings. No, no. Christians have the glorious privilege of living by faith in things called facts, things that really happened in human history like the cross and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And when you live by faith in facts, these are the things that you say as you read Psalm 88 in Romans chapter 5 and verses 9 through 11. Since therefore I have been justified by his blood, much more shall I be saved from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God, he is our friend, he is your friend. Shall we be saved by his life? And more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the, recollection, the, re, the, the reconciliation, which means no wrath of God toward me. Not, 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 not. Because God's not a God of wrath. But because all of God's wrath was poured out on your great husband, the Lord Jesus. See? See what the gospel, why it's glorious. Or one of my favorite texts, 1 Thessalonians. You know, Thessalonica's northern Greece, entrenched paganism. One of the first places Paul goes, he must have wondered, Lord, you're sending me to a completely alien place, Thessalonica, the Greeks to preach the gospel. And God did a wonderful work there as we pray he'll do in our day. And Paul says, around as I travel, people report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols because idols can't save you from your sins. To serve the living and the true God, well, if you're serving the living and the true God, it looks like you're captive to truth and you have life, right? And to wait for his son from heaven who raised him from the dead, hallelujah. The great Joseph, greatly honored. The great Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, greatly promoted. See it? Who raised him from the dead, but doesn't stop there. Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Are you delivered from the wrath to come? I say this out of love for you. You sit and you say, I really don't want to have anything to do with this Jesus. Then you're saying, I want to have a lot to do with the wrath of God. And that's why you run to Christ. That's why when you read Psalm 88, you read it with the lens of, of Christ himself. You may feel these things, but you don't live out of your feelings, but your facts. And remember that in your darkness, you are never alone. It's interesting that in records of the, as we have them, of the worship of the early church, there would always be something like this. Uh, the, the, the leader of worship would say, the Lord be with you. And the people would respond by saying, and also with you. Why? Well, because these were people undergoing persecution. These were people in darkness. These were people who felt alone in a pagan world and hopeless in many cases. The Lord's with them. And the Lord Jesus is with you even as you were with him 
in his darkness. He's the pioneer. He led the way. And you're right there with him. See, with a pioneer, you are with that pioneer going through that uncharted territory of death. When darkness was Christ's closest friend, so that, listen, it is never, never, never your friend at all. Because Jesus, Jesus came through that outer darkness and he conquered it and he is in the light and in him you walk in him and he'll never leave you and he'll never forsake you. Let's end with Luke 24, the greatest sermon ever preached. Luke chapter 24 and verse 44, you, you are with Jesus and Jesus in that sermon opens up Psalm 88 and so many other things and speaks of his glory. Here, here is deliverance from wrath. Here's deliverance from loneliness. Here's deliverance from hopelessness. Here's not only deliverance from darkness, here's the light of the world. And I think your response would be something like this. What you, my Lord, did suffer was all for sinner's gain. Mine, mine was the transgression, but yours, the deadly pain. Lo, here I fall, my Savior. Tis I deserve your place. Look on me with your favor and grant to me your grace. What language shall I borrow to thank you, dearest friend, for this, your dying sorrow, your pity without end? Oh, make me yours forever. And should I fainting be, Lord, let me never, never outlive my love for thee. That begins to have something of an adequate appreciation of the cross in which you and I are meant to boast and which is spoken of so, so sublimely in Psalm 88. Darkness for Jesus was his closest friend that in Jesus light might be your closest friend. Let's pray. Our God, we marvel at the facts of the gospel. We marvel that these things we've spoken of really happened. If we could go back in time machines, we would see these things. We would hear these things. All of these things that were written in Psalm 88 would have their magnificence, sublime, awesome fulfillment in Christ. But Lord, may we realize this is not a performance by God. This is the very power of God unto salvation. May we think seriously about the fulfillment of Psalm 88 in Christ and realize that apart from him, everything in Psalm 88 is ours eternally. But in Christ who bore all of those things himself,
We have not death, but life. We have not loneliness, but his presence. We have not hopelessness, but everlasting hope. And we have not darkness, but light. From the light of the world, Jesus Christ, in whom we pray together and confirm that we desire to be heard as we say together, Amen.